From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. If you ask any researcher who has done the most to shape their career, they'll probably describe an early mentor. Whether it was a professor, a PI, or a fellow postdoc, nearly all successful researchers can point to a person that saw the big picture and illuminated the path forward. On today's episode, Dr. Nero Ananda Sabapathy talks about the mentors who helped her on her way to groundbreaking discoveries about immune cells and cancer. She also delves into the work her lab is doing that could one day lead to a vaccine against skin cancer. Dr. Ananda Sabapathy is an assistant professor of dermatology at Harvard Medical School and an associate physician in the Department of Dermatology at Brigham and Women's Hospital. She is the recipient of a Melanoma Research Alliance Young Investigator Award and is a member of the Dana-Farber Harvard Cancer Center's Cancer Immunology and Melanoma Programs. Hello, Dr. Ananda Sabapathy. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Can you tell us a bit about how you got started in your field? Do you have any personal connections to what you do? Um, So my field is hard to define. Um, I'm sort of at the intersection of several fields. Um, I'm an immunologist by training, um, but I did my PhD at Stanford in cancer biology. This is some time ago now. And at that time, the question we were trying to understand is why does the immune system fail to see cancer? Um, So in my PhD, I studied immune tolerance um, and specifically T-cell tolerance um, with the idea that if we could understand what made T-cells not destroy your own tissue, we might be able to overcome that to develop new cancer therapeutics. Clinically, however, I'm trained as a dermatologist. And uh, that was a very personal decision. I had a mixed list. I'm probably the only derm applicant at that time who couldn't decide on becoming a dermatologist or a medical oncologist. And so I interviewed for both. I interviewed for internal medicine with a short track to Hemonc. And I also interviewed for dermatology to study medical dermatology. And so I alternated choices. Um, And I turned out, I let the rank decide for me. And I turned out being a dermatologist um, by training. And then um, in my postdoctoral work, I moved from dermatology into understanding the skin as a place where we could generate great vaccines and using that knowledge to try to get the immune system to see and fight cancer. Can you tell us about your current research? Um, So my laboratory is fairly small. The current research in our laboratory is aimed at trying to, again, still understand this very simple question. Why does the immune system fail to see cancer? We study a cell type called the dendritic cell. These are really cool cells. These are cells that um, sample all these proteins that circulate. So for example, Abby, if your skin was turning over um, and you would, would release normal skin proteins, your dendritic cells would take up those proteins and tell T cells to stay quiet. Don't attack these proteins. This isn't Abby having chicken pox. This is Abby just, you know, scratching her skin or just turning over her skin in the steady state. Um, but the dendritic cell is also the most powerful cell to teach a T cell how to fight a virus or how to fight cancers as well. And the difference between those for a dendritic cell is if it gets a licensing cue. So DCs, um, if they see a danger signal 
And we say like a danger signal would be like a viral RNA or a bacterial protein in its capsule. Then the dendritic cell um, flips the switch and learns how to activate a T cell or has a program to activate T cells in that. So we understand that difference and we try to understand that difference at barriers. So places that are in the environment that interface, like your skin is your interface between your body and the world around you. That's kind of the overarching objective. So if I had to describe a specific program, it would be around how a failure um, to see a tumor might arise from the need to maintain homeostasis or to the need to not destroy your body's own tissues. And then to address that, we have four programs. One program is understanding how these immune cells enter peripheral tissues like the skin all the time, why and how they traffic proteins from your skin to the draining lymph node and what the consequences are for tumor surveillance of that homeostatic program. We published on this recently. Another program in the lab is understanding how dendritic cells in tissues alter the fate of T cells and how tumors co-opt the programming not only of the dendritic cell in the tissue, but also of the T cell. So we generally hypothesize that the immune system sees cancer as a tissue, much like it sees the skin, and so we try to understand the differences in response in a healthy environment like your skin versus in a skin cancer as distinct. And then a third project in the lab is to understand how to overcome this. And so for that, we try to study the smallpox vaccine as one of the most effective, if not the most effective vaccine in the history of mankind. And we try to understand how dendritic cells receive not only viral cues from the smallpox vaccine, but also scar cues. So the smallpox vaccine is given by skin scarring, right? by scratching up your skin and you get a, a not so nice dime sized scar. But it's a very effective vaccine and we hypothesize that the scarring process is part of what makes the DC so good in that context and we're trying to understand that licensing and the last project um, in the lab is that we've identified a new immunotherapy target. We were understanding dendritic cells in the skin, and we found out that this protein contributes to their tolerance, and it's also expressed in tumors. So we're trying to understand how we can inhibit that protein to try to expand the immune response against cancer. While it seems like we're studying a lot of skin-specific processes, in fact, the programs we've identified are co-opted in 30 cancers, including 29 cancers of peripheral tissues. So I think there's a lot of broad relevance to the work. What drew you to medicine in the first place? So I grew up in a family where my father is a physician. He's an anesthesiologist. My sister is a gastroenterologist and her husband is a head and neck surgeon. Um, my father was in a private practice at a university hospital, but my sister studies esophageal cancer and her husband studies melanoma and squamous cell cancer. So I think we could say that it's a bit of a family enterprise. Um, I think we had a lot of, my parents were um, kind of old, old fashioned and in a good way. They, we had a lot of, we always sat down at the dinner table. We always had a lot of interesting guests come to our house, a lot of other physicians, some scholars, um, some individuals in politics, because um, my family's from Sri Lanka. So there's a lot of humanism, I would say, in general. There was a lot of thought that, you know, if you came to America and you could make a life for yourself, you should give something back to society. And this was a good way to do that. Um, my parents were both really involved in helping refugees, for example, after the war in Sri Lanka. Um, they actually you know, founded an orphanage, for example. So I think, and I also went to Catholic school for 13 years, not as a Catholic, as a Hindu. So I think there's a lot of um, kind of a culture of thinking that there's, you need to give back, you need to do something for society, you need to help other people. 
I think my sister and I both had that value. Um, she majored in English at Yale, and she went into medicine. Um, I majored in art history at Stanford, and I also went into medicine. So I think that that speaks a lot to our influences coming into this. We both went to Catholic school where English, French, history, painting, dance, music were fairly strong. And that's how our parents, what our po- parents focused on in our childhood, um, kind of that well-rounded humanist kid. We always read a lot of books. Um, on vacation there was not very much television time and so I think medicine kind of became a way to put that into an applied setting to kind of yeah bring your compassion into an applied setting how did you go from art history to being a medical doctor yeah that was an interesting transition so um in grade school and high school I really loved science and math but I also really loved painting and drawing and sculpture but my very Asian parents gave me two choices in life, and it was doctor and lawyer. And they said, we support your love of the arts, but it's something you would do on the side. Um, and that will really make your career and your life more enriched. And my father assured me that if I were to become an artist, um, I would soon grow to hate the arts <laughs> instead of love the arts. So I didn't have a ton of choice, I have to admit. But I, I think we all, like my sister found a way to balance her love of English and her love of literature with her career in medicine. She's an excellent grant writer, I might add. Um, I I love things that are visual. Um, I worked at the Metropolitan Museum of Art before starting college. I majored in um, classical Greek 4th and 5th century vase painting. Um, And I really loved that the vases told a story and that you had to study the details in these vases to really understand the history of the time. And then when I went into medical school, Dermatology was not something I would have chosen for myself, but I think it did very much capture my interest in things that were visual. And it also captured my compassion for patients who couldn't hide their disease, unlike in other specialties in medicine, right? So say you had HIV or you had cancer and you're walking down the street, no one really knows that about you. You have privacy. But if you have psoriasis or really severe cystic acne or a really bad fungal infection um, or leprosy even, it, it will change your life in a way that really changes the way you socialize and interface and feel about yourself in a very profound level. Um, and that, that appealed to me a lot, actually, coming from an art history background. I think it also made it easier for me to have like good pattern recognition skills, to be able to identify melanoma skin cancer and to kind of build some of those skills. Now, I started in the laboratory the summer after my first year of college, and it was sort of by chance. I was studying art history, but I was also pre-med, and my sister said to me, if you want to get into medical school, you've got to go do a summer of research. Um, And I said, well, I, I don't know what that means, and where should I do it, and being the, you know, really rigorous older sister that she was. She said, well, I'm at Albert Einstein. I'm going to send you a book of investigators with summer projects for students and you find the one that you like. So I wrote to some investigators and I was very fortunate. A neuroscientist called Anne Etkin took me to her lab and I just had an amazing, amazing experience in her laboratory. And I essentially fell in love with doing science at that time. And um, when I got back to school, my sister said, you know, you don't have to keep doing this. Like, this is something you can do in the summer. and It'll make your application better. And I said, but I really like doing this. And so I, um, I found a PI, uh, James Nelson, who's a great cell biologist. James, unlike many investigators, actually trained me a lot himself. He was always available. He would pull antibodies out of the freezers with his own hands. He knew which clones I should use. Um, I was very lucky because there were two German uh, postdocs in the lab, uh, two German women who um, took it upon themselves to like really take the time to teach me at the microscope. 
And again, you know, there was this tie to the visual arts. I loved microscopy. It was amazing to see proteins in real time. Um, and I really enjoyed that work. That definitely kind of lit the science bug further. And then in my last year of college, I took an immunology class with this um, incredible immunologist, Pat Jones. And Pat's class was all written around problem sets. You had to solve major issues in like immunology and you had to design the experiments to solve diseases. Um, with, you know, rigorous scientific thinking. And that's, I think, where I began to learn how to ask questions. Um, I can't thank Pat enough for teaching that class. I think I still think about some of the questions she asked that we try to address as students. Um, I hope to be half as good a teacher to my students as she was to us. And uh, that was a really great experience. And so I knew that immunology was the field that related to medicine, and it kind of pulled all of this together. Um, and so I decided... Um, to get my PhD. Actually, James was very funny. My, my undergrad mentor, he said to me, he said, I'll write you a letter, but I'll only give it to you if you apply MD PhD. And I said, <laughs> I've been in your lab for two years. I've worked 20 to 40 hours a week. And <laughs> you've given me an A on all my lab scores. Like, why would you? And he said, Nope, you need to do this. You'll thank me later. <laughs> and um, it's true. I was gonna otherwise, I would have just applied to medical school. And he insisted I apply to the MD PhD. And I'd never seen myself that way. I had a kind of like, you think about yourself. And I thought, oh, I'm the art person. I'm the person who wears scarves and goes to museums and drinks hot tea. <laughs> but uh, in fact, he didn't see me that way. He saw me as a real scientist. And um, I don't think I would have ever taken myself as seriously as he took me. So I'm very grateful to him. I had great mentorship. And then I joined Gary Fathman's lab. who was an immunologist. I did a year as a research tech before starting medical school. And I rotated through several other labs. But ultimately, I decided to stay on in, in Gary's lab. Um, Gary is a, a very a generous individual. Um, he's kind of a larger than life personality. And he he really is one of the old kind of giants of the autoimmune field. Um, and so we, he would just have these very philosophical lab meetings. We would sometimes sit in his backyard around his Mexican fireplace and we would drink with him and just talk about science and how basic discoveries were made. And it was just the perfect way to be a PhD student, actually, not just dealing with the everyday small steps of getting your Western to work or getting a mouse immunized or whatever, but also getting that um, kind of larger than life history. It was almost like a, like a fireside chat with Gary. Um, and that was really invaluable. I stayed on at Stanford for my MD PhD. And it was funny, I, at the time in which I graduated, I had um, some positions at other places, like, you know, like Northwestern, for example, to do a combined MSDP, the Medical Scientist Training Program, uh, which I'm sure many people are familiar with. And I decided to stay at Stanford at that time, unfunded, to do a PhD and MD separately. Now, keep in mind, an MD PhD, the average time for both degrees is seven years or eight years. And separately, a PhD, the average time was six years and MD was four years. But I decided that I would do this. And if I could finish my PhD in three years, that it would be worth it because I would basically be doing the same thing. Um, but if I had to stay for six years, I wasn't sure. I said, let me get to year three and I'll, I'll reassess. It felt like a long, six years feels like a long time in your life. And I still advise students, look, come in with a focus, try to take on more than one project so that you know something is always working. Try to keep a couple balls in the air. But that's always been, I've always been kind of like a bit of a multitasker. And so I think that that was pretty effective. I finished my PhD in two and a half years, actually, at Stanford. And so I graduated in a combined of seven. Um, and then I went on to my dermatology residency, where the, the match selected my future. But at the end of Derm, actually, what's nice is some of these residencies have these programs that are called two plus one or two plus two. So I did one year of medicine, 
And then I did two years of dermatology. And my last year, they let me go to the laboratory. And at that time, it was the last year that NYU allowed this. But at that time, NYU, where I did my derm residency, allowed you to go to any lab in New York. So I chose to go to the laboratory of Ralph Steinman. And actually didn't choose Ralph's lab. I went to Ralph because Gary told me Ralph would be a good person to get advice from because he's a mensch. He's a good guy. He'll give you advice about whose lab you should join because I thought I would be a T-cell immunologist indefinitely. So Ralph and I met and um, it was interesting. From the time I emailed him to the time we met, there was an eight-month gap. And during that eight-month gap, um, Ralph had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. But Ralph, despite having gone through surgery... (laughs) Uh, for his pancreatic cancer in between, he still remembered to email me. He went back and he emailed me eight months after my original email and said, Dear Nero, my apologies for the long delay. I did receive your email, but unfortunately, I've been very busy. Would you like to meet? Um, and so just what an amazing person, right? Here he is. He has his own lab of 20-something people to run. He's just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And he finds the time to email a medical resident in dermatology, And when I met with Ralph, I knew he was a special person. He had pulled up my PhD work. He'd actually read it, which was amazing, right? You think only your mother has actually read your PhD. And he had a lot of commentary about the work that we had done. He said, look, I really enjoyed this work. And um, we just talked about all the science that was happening at all the institutions in New York. And um, I I interviewed with a couple other people who offered me postdocs. But ultimately, I just went back to Ralph and I said, you know, I didn't think I was going to study dendritic cells, but I think they're very important and I'd like to learn more about them. Um, Would you consider having me in your lab? But I didn't know that Ralph was sick at this point. And he said, yeah, I would love, I would love to have you in my lab, but you'd have to start off studying the brain because Ralph himself was so busy at that time. And so I got, uh, had a wonderful opportunity to work with Kung Lu, who is now a faculty member at Columbia. She was a graduate student of Ralph's. She was a postdoc of Michelle Nussenzweig's. And she had made some really important discoveries about surveillance of the steady state brain by dendritic cells. And so Kung and I, um, I like to, I always tell her I was her first, her first student. Um, and she was already faculty then, but we really got to study the surveillance of barriers tissue in the brain and that I did that for a year with Kung and then it actually was a natural transition to studying the skin as a barrier and vaccines as a barrier and Ralph had me work on FLT3 ligand which is a very important um, drug that increases dendritic cells and which he felt and which I also feel could be used in cancer patients so I also ran a clinical trial the Rockefeller had something, it had a CTSA and it had this KL2 program where you could take three additional years to train. And so I did that. Um, and it was interesting. When I joined Ralph's lab, I emailed one of my mentors at Stanford and he said, well, um, you couldn't, I, I think Ralph would be a perfect person to train with, but I should tell you offline, he has pancreatic cancer. And so I'm not sure how long he'll be with us. And so just be aware that you could join his lab and he could pass away. And I think I remember writing back, I think if I spent three months with this man, it would be more than I could get out of six years with somebody else. And that was definitely true. Um, Ralph lived for an additional four or five years, but unfortunately he passed away. I joined his lab as a resident still in 2008 and Ralph passed away in 2000, I think September of 2011, I believe might have been 2012. I'm losing track of time now. But yeah. And I stayed in the lab until the end of 2012 to finish a clinical trial. Oh, it was 2011, definitely, because I stayed another year to finish a clinical trial. And then I came to start my own lab. That experience definitely changed sort of what I started my lab in. Um, Before Ralph passed away, I had made a surprising discovery in the lab. We were 
deleting these immune cells. We were trying to close a paper, actually, and we were deleting dendritic cells in the skin. They had been shown to initiate priming to vaccines. And we just figured, oh, we'll do that. The vaccine response will go away, and then I'll close this paper, and yay, I'll get my paper, and I'll move on to something totally new. And in fact, um, instead, we found out the response was higher. It was the complete opposite of what we expected. So I was sure I had done something wrong. So I remember I went to Ralph. I was giving the last lab meeting, and we didn't know it would be his last lab meeting. And, um, you know, his lab meetings could be tough. And I presented the data and he said, I said, well, you know, maybe I switched the groups. And he said, I doubt if it was you, you switched the groups. He said, how many times did you do the experiment? And I said, seven. He said, so you're telling me you're worried you switched the group seven times. I'm like, this just doesn't make sense with what's in the literature. And Ralph was great. He said, maybe you're right. Like, maybe you're on to something. Maybe this will be a big discovery for you. Just keep going, Nero. Just do what you need to do. We discussed some controls. I told him some other experiments I was going to do. He's very supportive. It was definitely a mentor who saw more in me again than I saw in myself. So that was definitely, I think that's a theme. How did that experience transition into what you're doing now? I think the hardest thing as a student and a postdoc is not executing experiments or even um, planning them per se. I think, I think it's easy to learn that skill. I think the hardest skill is to know what's important and what's not important. Um, I was very lucky because I think that Ralph came to me before he passed away and said, this is important. You're doing good work. Keep going. And I think that, you know, without that, I wasn't really sure if I, if I was right, like, or if, we, if this would be irrelevant to disease or, or um, what we wanted to accomplish. Was this like a one-off thing? Like, what did this mean? You don't always have the confidence to follow up your ideas and actually like launch your lab to take those on. Um, I was also actually very lucky when I started my laboratory here, Tom Cupper, who's my chair, said to me, my philosophy is ask me for forgiveness, not permission. This is your chance to do the science you've always wanted to do. So just do it. Um, and I really, I really uh, value and respect that from Tom. I think that experience helped me take some risks. So the we were able to set up a few different projects in the lab that were higher risk, higher reward projects going forward. What are you expecting from the different programs you're working on now? What we hope to accomplish in our program um, is probably threefold. First, we want to really begin to understand the very simple question of why the immune system fails to see cancer in the first place. And I think that the recent paper we had began to take some steps towards that. We'd like to continue to solve that. The paper showed that from an evolutionary perspective, as your immune cells develop in the bone marrow and grow up or differentiate, they're trained to not destroy yourself. And there's a cytokine called interferon gamma that we demonstrated had a role in the steady state and this happening and conditioning dendritic cells in the tissue. And we also demonstrated that through interferon gamma, this program is co-opted into cancers. And some of the genes in that program are permissive to tumor immune escape or the immune system not seeing the tumor because it, those are genes that you want to use, the immune system wants to use to prevent destroying its own tissues. So solving that a little bit further would actually be really important. Understanding the functional role of interferon gamma uh, in kind of a more organic way would be really critical for us. Another point we'd like to accomplish is to identify new immunotherapy targets, new genes that we can begin to develop therapeutics against to help expand the immune response to cancer when it exists, but also to help to create an immune response against cancers when it doesn't exist. How do we get more T cells inside the tumor? How do we get dendritic cells to start to see a cancer instead of seeing it as skin or as tissue? So I think if we could accomplish those two things, I think I would feel very good. 
And I think the last um, goal would really be to bring a therapeutic to the clinic, at least one. Um, I really enjoyed running a clinical trial. I did not love the regulatory paperwork, but I did love working with patients and um, participating in something that might actually go into cancer patients. And it is now. The drug FLT3 ligand is now. I'm not running the trials in melanoma, but Nina Bardwages is at Mount Sinai. And they've enrolled uh, many melanoma patients for a combination of the FLT3 ligand to expand the dendritic cell numbers, a toll-like receptor agonist to do the licensing that I mentioned, the mimicking a virus, and then delivering a tumor protein to the dendritic cell at the same time. And that's, I think, going to be successful. Um, so I think to continue to actually expand the therapeutic arsenal for our patients and, and to be someone who can live in both worlds, to bring the bench back to the bedside would be important for me and for our group. What's the hardest part about doing science? Um, I think the hardest thing about doing science is not maybe the science itself. I think it's that, you know, I think the United States in particular is really predicated on um, like Olympians, like gold medalists. It's not necessarily a team sport per se, like soccer, right? We think of who's going to be the, the lead singer, who's going to be on Star Search or American Idol, right? And I think that for science, like I don't see science that way. I see science as a team sport, much like a soccer team, right? That you have a skill set and you need to kick that ball to another team member or another laboratory because then they can advance the field and then they can kick it back to you and you can move it forward again. And I think um, finding the right teams and working with the right people, people who um, can work collaboratively, who want to put check their ego at the door, who aren't thinking about what's in it for me, but really actually want to accomplish curing cancer. Um, that's... That's rare, actually. And um, I think that the people you find who are like that are really exceptional people. So kind of the hardest thing and the best thing are probably the same thing for me, which are really finding great people to work with and really enjoying that process. You know, I think the advice I would give other individuals is find the good people and value and support and be generous with those people. And they'll be generous right back to you. And you can do great things, I hope. Thank you again for joining us, Neuro. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Oh, it's been wonderful. It's, it's, I feel really old. I'm like, there's a lot to reflect on. Thanks, Avi. Next time on Think Research. Seeing the way patients recover, seeing what obstacles they encounter inspires the type of questions that we study. And, and, and brain edema is one of them. When I started about seven years ago in studying brain edema, this was not an area that the field spent a lot of time and energy on. But as a clinician, I saw this every day in the unit. And it really motivated me to focus on it. It gave me confidence that if we could identify new treatments, it would have major clinical impact. Dr. Taylor Kimberly joins us to talk about how his clinical work treating stroke patients inspires and motivates his research. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. Thank you.